I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. Today on Truth of the Matter, we have back my favorite repeat guest, Dr. Seth Jones, who's the head of our international security program, senior vice president at CSIS and the Harold Brown chair. Seth, welcome. Andrew, it is great to be on. Thanks for having me. It's so good to talk again. And, you know, we have to talk about what's going on in Ukraine. You have a new report that you released this week that you actually unveiled on CNN on Monday night. Ukrainian innovation in a war of attrition is the title of the report. What was the key headline of the report? It really showed something about Russia that I don't think many of us have put together before that. What, what was the key headline? Well, Andrew, probably the key headline was just the number of Russian fatalities in a historical context. I think everybody's aware that the war in Ukraine right now is a war of attrition, that it's leading to high casualties and fatalities on both sides. But when you put it into historical context, what is really stunning is that there are more Russian soldiers, both regular and irregular, killed in Ukraine between February 2022 and today, then in all of Russia and the Soviet Union's wars since World War II combined. That includes Soviet activity, and they lost some soldiers in Korea, Hungary, United Arab Republic, that's Egypt, Yemen, Algeria, Vietnam, Mozambique, Czechoslovakia, the Sino-Soviet border conflict uh, with China, Angola, Ethiopia, then the brutal wars that the Soviets fought in Afghanistan and that Russia fought in Chechnya, then in Georgia, Ukraine starting in 2014, and then Syria. So what the Russians have lost in, in Ukraine is greater than all of those wars combined in numbers of fatalities. That is stunning. And what's particularly stunning, too, is the average rate of Russian deaths. So the Russians have averaged about 5,000 to 5,800 regular and irregular soldiers killed per month in Ukraine. That compares to between 95 and 185 killed per month in Chechnya over about a 15-year period, and then about uh, 130 to 145 killed per month in, in Afghanistan. So those are extraordinary differences, like 95 and 130 to 5,000. It's an enormous, they're suffering, you know, in ways that we have not seen since World War II. It really is astonishing, Seth. So, I mean, just to put this perspective, let's remember, this has only been one year of conflict we're talking about here, right? Yeah, it's just one year. So more dead in one year than in all those wars combined. And, and as a reminder, the Soviet war in Afghanistan was a 10-year war. The war in Chechnya Started in 1994, then paused in 96, and the Russians went back at it in 1999. They went for another 10 years. So, you know, one year versus, in both cases, at least a decade, if not more. So I have to ask, what is so different with this conflict? Well, the uh, wars in Afghanistan and Chechnya for the Russians were, in both cases, counterinsurgency campaigns. So they were facing guerrilla forces in Afghanistan, the Mujahideen, which the U.S., including the CIA, provided support to. In Chechnya, they were facing both nationalist and then jihadist groups, but they were 
conducting ambushes, raids. The difference in Ukraine right now is that's a war of attrition. It's a conventional war between two major militaries, including two major armies. And what we've seen is, you know, unlike what we saw with those counterinsurgency campaigns, the Ukrainians and Russians have constructed trench systems. They've made heavy use of artillery. The Russians have employed human wave attacks against fixed Ukrainian positions. That includes frontal assaults that attempt to seize ground by sheer weight of numbers. And so those kinds of operations and tactics are just are brutal. I mean, they take a heavy toll on ground forces involved in them. So given these facts that we see now and the extreme death the Russians are suffering, does it make it any more likely that they may stop or they may pause like they did in Chechnya and back up and just regroup? What do we think is next? Well, Andrew, the the challenge for Vladimir Putin is his legacy is at stake if, with the war. And everything that he has said has indicated that he's going to continue to fight. What the Russians and what the Kremlin has done is a couple of things to try to mitigate the domestic costs and risks. One is the security services, including the FSB, have really cracked down on any opposition within Russia and have put a number of people in prison for that. The second is the Russians, not surprisingly, conduct a heavy disinformation campaign against their own population. And they've been helped globally by some countries like China, uh, which have similarly obfuscated the realities of what has gone on. In addition, it's also true that most of the Russian soldiers that have died, and those include regular Russian soldiers, plus uh, some of the mercenaries, the contractors like the Wagner Group, a lot of those individuals are coming from places like Central Asia or Siberia. These are places where that are f- far from Moscow and St. Petersburg, far from you know political elites within Russia right now. So the costs involved, at least politically, to sons of influential Russians has been very limited. Nevertheless, all of these soldiers, uh, and there are, by our estimates, between 16,000 dead Russians, all of these uh, soldiers have mothers. So at some point, much like uh, with Gorbachev in the mid-1980s, you know, there may very well be cracks. We've already seen a little bit of that with the public accusations back and forth between Putin's ally, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who runs the Wagner Group, and Minister of Defense Shoigu and Valery Gerasimov, the chief of the army staff. We saw during the last mobilization, huge outflows of individuals didn't want to be drafted. So there are some cracks, but so far, Putin has been able to keep a lid on that. What's not clear is how long he's going to be able to do that. So Seth, while he's trying to keep a lid on it, what's going on on the ground and what are the Russians doing that's not working? What are the Ukrainians doing that's working and not working? What are the Russians doing that is working? Well, what the Russians have going for them to some degree is mass. So it's worth noting that before the invasion even started, Russia had nearly five times as many military personnel as Ukraine, a defense budget that was 11 times larger than Ukraine, an economy that was almost eight times larger and significantly better military capabilities. That included advanced fighter aircraft, artillery, main battle tanks, including the T-72s and T-90s, nuclear weapons, and one of the world's most feared offensive cyber capabilities. So Russia does continue to have 
some advantages in just sheer numbers in an industrial base that's certainly larger than Ukraine. But the problem is uh, what we've seen is the, the Russian army in particular just can't fight effectively. Its combined arms operations are poor. It's the Russian military's joint efforts, that is the ability to include air, naval, ground assets, also cyber and space, and to do it in a manner that's uh, joint and efficient. The, the Russians are having significant problems. Morale is low. They continue to have some challenges with logistics. It's not, the war is not popular. It doesn't appear to be pop, popular among many of the many of the soldiers. So there's some basic will to fight problems. On the other side, while the Ukrainians have suffered significant casualties, the Ukrainians haven't faced many of the same problems. There's a significant will to fight. I mean, this is about survival for Ukraine. We've also seen, Andrew, and this has been one of the most interesting parts, a lot of military innovation happening among the Ukrainians that's been able to make up for, for some of the differences in sheer power. The way the Ukrainians, for example, have conducted missions using drones for not just the way I used them, Andrew, when I was in special operations for strike, but also for target identification, for artillery, for battlefield awareness, for information operations, for electronic warfare. The Ukrainians have been phenomenal in developing software. Like we took a look at and interviewed people involved in pulling together the Krapiva defense mapping software. It's essentially mapping software that you can put onto a iPad that allows you to uh, monitor Russian locations. You can pull information from Ukrainian drones, uh, show you where Russian targets are, and then you use U Ukrainian artillery to strike those targets. We also interviewed a range of other innovative activities among the Ukrainians, developing software, a, a GIS, ARTA, combat vision, and the recently deployed Delta situational awareness and battlefield management systems. They're just, they're just innovative in how they fight. That has started to level the playing field in Ukraine, although, you know, at some point, the Ukrainians are running out of people to fight. Seth, why aren't the Russians able to overwhelm the Ukrainians with their air power? What the Ukrainians have done with Western support is have air defense systems that make it virtually impossible, at the very least, create high risks for uh, Russian aircraft to fly over Ukrainian territory. So the, the Ukrainians now have, they've got S-300s, they've got shoulder-launched stingers, they've got Patriot air defense systems. These are all defense systems that make it very difficult for Russian aircraft to fly unmolested over Ukrainian territory. I mean, just, just so everybody's aware too, when the U.S. was involved in operations in Iraq against ISIS or Syria against ISIS or Afghanistan against the Taliban, U.S. aircraft never really had to face anything significant. In a few cases, some concerns about surface-to-air missiles, but but really nothing meaningful, and certainly nothing in Afghanistan. I didn't have to worry about anything other than really, you know, some very limited ground-based capabilities that could shoot down helicopters in Afghanistan. In Ukraine, the Russians do have to worry about any of their advanced aircraft getting shot down by S-300s or even Patriots pose serious problems. This has made it impossible for most sophisticated Russian aircraft like the Su-34s and the Su-35s 
They just they just can't get air superiority in Ukraine, and it's made it very difficult to support those Russian ground forces. Now, one thing the Russians do have going for them is their cyber capabilities. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know your report discusses that as one of the factors. Yeah, so the Russians, particularly the GRU, the main intelligence directorate, as well as the SVR, Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service, have historically had very effective offensive cyber capabilities. But there are two interesting components. One is that the Ukrainians have gotten better over the years in responding to Russian offensive cyber operations. And in some cases, with help from foreign governments like uh, NSA and U.S. Cyber Command, as well as uh, British GCHQ, which is the rough equivalent of the National Security Agency in the United States. In addition, the Ukrainians have had help from the private sector. So Microsoft has been very public in its uh, cyber defense capabilities and its assistance to Ukraine. Same thing, the uh, Ukrainians, in response to the Russians trying to take down their satellite and some cyber capabilities have leveraged SpaceX's Starlink for communication for both defensive and then in some cases offensive operations. In addition, Andrew, we're, you know, we also see the Ukrainians really just being able to have resilience on the cyber side. Every time there's been a Russian attack, malware, for example, the Ukrainians are able to get most of their systems back up and running relatively quickly. So they've gotten help, they've been resilient, and that's certainly been able to limit the damage caused by Russian offensive cyber operations, whether the GRU or the SVR. And then we've also seen the Russians very unwilling to expand offensive cyber operations to NATO countries, including the U.S. So they've been largely deterred and they've kept most of their activity within Ukraine. Seth, finally, I want to ask you about U.S. intelligence and the recent comments made by CIA Director Bill Burns by the president himself and others that China is considering helping Russia rearm. What would that mean for Russia? And why do you think the administration is doing this right now? Well, one of the things that the administration has done, in my view, effectively since well before the war began, was to take intelligence, both raw intelligence and then finished intelligence, intelligence analysis, and made some of it public in ways that are helping individuals in other governments and the general public, including the U.S., understand what is going on. And then even in some cases to try to deter. Now, deterrence didn't work when the administration went public in the late stages of 2021. Then in January and February 2022, when the U.S. went public, that the Russians were likely preparing to invade Ukraine, providing that information publicly did not deter the Russians from going. But what it did is, is it helped shape the battle space and the information arena so that people across the globe were aware that the Russians were likely to move, and they did move into Ukraine. I think this is an evolution in that strategy, which is it does appear that the U.S. and probably some of its allies, uh, I would assume the British as well, have pieced together information from multiple sources about discussions between the Chinese and the Russians and possibly internal discussions among the Chinese that they are considering expanding the assistance they, they give to Russia, including drones or munitions aiding the Russian industrial base. And so this is a, a, an effort to A, 
get in front of that and B, to try to deter the Chinese because what senior U.S. officials have said is that they would start imposing sanctions on China for doing that. But Andrew, this would have a pretty serious potential impact on the war, depending on what the Chinese gave, how much, and what kinds of munitions. This is an industrial-style war. And for the moment right now, it is mostly Russia versus the West, the Western industrial base. The Russians have had some assistance from the Iranians, some from the North Koreans, and a bit from China. But if China was to start giving weapon systems and munitions like artillery, what this would really be increasingly is a war between the industrial bases of the West, the US, the Europeans, aiding Ukraine, and then China, Iran, North Korea, aiding the Russians. This starts to look a lot more like major power war, essentially a proxy war among all of the major powers. This starts getting very concerning, and it would almost certainly make this war even more protracted than it is right now. And we think that we have the ability to deter the Chinese because, of course, if they did this, the consequences in terms of the global economic order are tremendous. For instance, you know, China relies on the United States for trade. China relies on Europe for trade. If they were to be sanctioned the way we're currently sanctioning Russia, that would be a big hit to the Chinese economy, and it could promote some real instability in China. That's got to be their fear and on their mind. Well, I think it most certainly is likely on their mind. The challenge, though, is that the U.S. would be impacted, as would U.S. companies, potentially by sanctions. Again, it would depend on what sanctions and, and who is sanctioned. And so at the end of the day, you know, it's an open question about how much this actually deters China. Again, highlighting the intelligence and making it public before the Russian invasion of Ukraine and threatening sanctions did not, at the end of the day, deter the Russians from invading. So I think it's an open question now whether providing publicly some aspects of that intelligence, which the administration has done, and threatening sanction is actually going to deter the Chinese. I think what the Chinese have to weigh is the costs and risks of suffering some of the sanctions, although they are well aware that the U.S. would almost certainly suffer as well, and they could retaliate with sanctions as well, and the risks of having the Russian military be ground down by the war with Ukraine and assistance from the West. And the way we started this podcast was to highlight that there are more Russian soldiers killed in Ukraine than in all Russian and Soviet wars combined since World War II. The Russian military, particularly the army, is being decimated right now. That cannot be good for China's most significant ally. So I think Beijing is going to have to weigh a range of these costs and benefits. Seth, as always, really insightful and great information. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much, Andrew. Really appreciate it, as always. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 